Welcome to The Fabric, a podcast from Lobby Capital. In this podcast, we explore the people we back, the people we work with, and those we partner with in hopes of better understanding what leads to successful entrepreneurship. Recognizing there is no single recipe or list of ingredients in successful entrepreneurs, but instead a combination of past experiences, relationships, serendipity, and personal characteristics that shape and influence their achievements. So through our conversations, we will dissect various case studies in hopes of unraveling the fabric of successful entrepreneurs. Welcome to The Fabric, a podcast by Lobby Capital. I am your host, Buddy Arnheim. I'm also a general partner here at Lobby Capital. We are an early stage venture capital investment fund founded in April of 2021. uh, And we've had the privilege of backing a number of amazing entrepreneurs, including the one that's sitting in front of me right now, Sina Ifruz. Thank you for joining us. Sina is the co-founder and CEO of Apera AI. Welcome. Thank you, buddy. Just as a reminder, the gist of this podcast is to really get behind the fabric of the entrepreneurs that we back and the other folks that we work with to better understand what makes them click, what makes them be successful, recognizing that there's no single ingredient or recipe for successful entrepreneurship, but the entrepreneurs that we've worked with that have ultimately become wildly successful come at their new ventures with a myriad of experiences and personal characteristics and strengths and weaknesses all molded together to sort of help motivate them to be successful. So we're going to get behind Cena today. We're going to learn a little bit about his background, where he came from, what motivates him, and really try to unravel his fabric. But before we do all that, Cena, I was hoping to first welcome you. Welcome. And if you wouldn't mind, maybe just give the listeners a quick overview of what Apera AI does. We'll come back in the second half of the podcast and really dig into what you're doing for the company. But I figure, give the listeners an overview of what Apera does. Of course. So at Apera AI, our mission is to simplify factory automation by giving robots intelligent vision. And the way we're doing that is with our AI-powered vision software used in vision-guided robotics, we enable automation of things that previously may not have been automatable, as well as giving manufacturers tools to automate better, automate faster with lower costs. I love this idea. Like manufacturing is not going away, right? And if anything, it's coming more and more back to North America over the last couple of years, which means it's facing really heavy labor costs, human error, all those things that just necessitate automation, right? And so this is the great enabler of yet even better, more accurate, more productive automation. And just, I can't wait to dig into that. Absolutely. And maybe I just tease in a quick anecdotal example. Just last week, I was at a tier one supplier of automotive and right at the beginning of the factory door, they had a huge sign stating what they're paying hourly, which they have increased significantly over the past year and an additional several thousand dollars of sign-on bonus for anybody who joins. Mm. And I heard stories of people sometimes taking advantage of these sign-on bonuses, getting the bonus, and then going to the next door factory that also gives a sign-on bonus. So uh, fulfilling these manufacturing jobs is becoming 
even harder and harder amazing. year over year. Amazing, amazing. We are going to dig deep into that. But before we do, let I want to make sure that, that we really start teeing up who you are. And so you and I have spent a bunch of time together. I think you have one of the most interesting backgrounds. And so I'm going to turn the, the clock back to sort of a young Cena and just tell us where were you born? Where did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about your early family life. So I was born in Iran, in Tehran. I spent most of my childhood in a city called Shiraz. And how far is that from Tehran? It's quite far. It's in the south. So that's probably about a thousand kilometers south. Oh, yeah. So my parents are from Shiraz originally. Both my parents are engineers. My dad's a electrical engineer. My mom is a petrochemical engineer. And can I pause on that for a sec? So not a lot of women anywhere in the world at that generation were engineers. But I assume, and this may be ignorant of me, I assume that it was even more rare in Iran. That's true. My mom particularly grew up in a small city near Shiraz. She was a really top student, so she got a scholarship for spending her high school years in a boarding school. Okay where most of her classmates were people who were effectively paying for a private school. Wow. And she was a tower of her class and she entered university, one of the best universities in Iran and studied petrochemical engineering, not because she necessarily looked at the job prospects because she had really, really loved chemistry. Yeah, neat. But yeah, I mean, growing up, I was surrounded with two people who valued you know, science, science and math and physics yep. a lot. So I had a lot of support there, but my entire life has been more or less broken into episodes. So my really childhood while we were living in Iran, I would say was dominated by the war. What years are these? So this is from 1981. 81 to about when I was eight years old. Okay. So 1989. Yeah. So seven out of those eight years was in the midst of the Iran-Iraq war. And what was that like? Here you have two very educated parents. So presumably, you know, you were better off than most. And yet you had this turbulence in the country and political uncertainty. Like, what was that like? It certainly had an impact on me that I will never forget. I was, I would say, old enough that I remember episodes when we had air raids and there would be like complete blackouts and uh, everybody would go down to the basement. We always had tapes on our windows just in case there was a bomb nearby that wow. would shatter the glasses that it wouldn't drop in. Were there ever any bombs that hit close enough that it was not very close to where we were Okay, uh, because we were sheltered by a mountain nearby. Mm -hmm. So the planes would have to fly over the mountain and we're not able to target that exact neighborhood. But there were certainly a lot of cases that I specifically remember where you would have a siren go off. There'd be a complete blackout. If you were on the car, you'd have to basically turn off the car, turn off all the lights on the car so that they wouldn't be able to spot wow. where streets are and where wow. uh, roads are. When the recent war in Ukraine started, for some reason, it was very hard for me. Triggered you, yeah. It triggered me sure. in a strange way. There are a lot of those memories that came back all of a sudden. You know, at the dinner table, when you would sit down with, and I forget, you have a brother. And a sister. And a sister. When you guys would sit with your parents at dinner, how did your parents explain what was going on to children? What did you understand to be the circumstance that was causing this? 
What's interesting is from the moment that I, that I remember, which is probably from around, you know, four or five years yeah. old, the war had gone on for such a long time that unfortunately it had become the norm. So there was, it was just not that was. much. It's just a, the way of the life. Yeah, well, like people didn't see when it's going to end. So there wasn't as much discussion perhaps at the dinner table right. about it. I'm sure there were more discussions when it had started, which is something that I fear will happen, you know, with right. the most recent war, which is as it drags on, it becomes part of the life and people get used to it. Was there a sense like in schools, was there a sense of, you know, we're right, they're wrong, we're good, they're bad. And how was that? Absolutely. And um, the regime that at the time was in power and mm -hmm. is still in power, it's a theocratic really regime. Yeah. And a lot of things are just propaganda. And when you have a tool like war, one of the most popular tools in uh, populist regimes is creating an enemy. Right. And when you actually literally have an enemy yes it's very easy to uh Rally drive that propaganda through everything so our school material the uh, education system the tv there was a lot of effectively almost dehumanizing yeah the neighboring country that had attacked us to the point that for the longest time you know many of us did actually hate someone that was from iraq right. not really understanding that they're also just, you know, like us. Trying to live their lives. Exactly. Right? I, I know, it's just right? So like for us to hate another human being just because they're from a neighboring country whose regime decided to start attacking our people. Right. That makes no sense. No. But there was so much propaganda yeah. that it had really shaped people's uh, thoughts and beliefs. So that's the environment you're sort of, you know, growing, you're at school and then around eight or nine years old. What? transpired to sort of get you to relocate what happened next uh what happened next was so the war was over yep and there were opportunities that were opening up and particularly two things transpired so my mom who had i believe about one or two semesters to finish a degree which she wasn't able to because of the uh, revolution that happened and uh she was a bit political she was at the time she was banned from continuing her education wow interesting we ended up moving back to tehran which is where she went to school for her to finish her education now this time was your dad a little older is he done with his schooling my dad had finished yeah. his schooling yeah so that combined with better paying job opportunities got my family to move to Tehran. Okay. And now, what your extended family was not in Tehran. Your extended family No, was, they were not. They were. So they were all in Shiraz. So we moved to Tehran and this is perhaps like the next episode of my life, which, which I'll call it the elementary school. Yeah. So it was filled with play, really. I was quite smart that all the school subjects were really, really easy to me that I almost never had to study at all <laughs> in order to get, you know, A scores. Good job. So I ended up playing a lot. It was playing soccer, or hanging with your friends or swimming or. Yeah, it was soccer, swimming and uh, video games at the time a little yep. bit. Biking, I was always in love with cycling. Yeah. Huh. So just any opportunity that I would have, I'd get on the bike, be out the door. Growing up in the States, 
and being on the receiving end of the American propaganda about Iran and Tehran, it's difficult to even envision normal city life based upon all the sort of biased information that I've been told over the years about Tehran. And yet, you know, when you see non-propaganda videos of Tehran, it's a gorgeous city. It's a vibrant city. It's nestled in the valley. So there are mountains surrounding it. It's got a, an amazing climate. Like, it's so, so fun to hear about normal life in Tehran. This was a period of reconstruction after the war mm -hmm. as well. There's a lot of opportunities. So my dad is very talented. And he was also fortunate enough to basically be plugged into this whole movement of reconstructing the country after the war. So was, he ended up basically seizing opportunities and having better positions. And all of that resulted in our wealth to also grow. And, you know, that period not only was all about play, but it was also a lot of, I would say, independence on my side. So I had a younger brother and a younger sister. My mom always says that she regrets this, but I actually take pride in the fact that I was highly independent. I remember when I was grade six, we would live about hour and a half from a uh, music school that I used to go to, hmm. which we used to live closer. And then we moved away and I would take, I think, three buses to go there and take my music lesson and then three buses back. So hour and a half to hour wow. and a half back. And then I remember another episode where I would take my younger brother on two buses to the swimming class during summer. And then we'd go there. I would make sure he has his lunch. Right. <laughs> and we come you back. Were, yeah, you were um, all this. You had responsibilities. So I actually enjoyed that. It was because your mom and dad were working, I assume, and they were busy. They were working, they're busy. And then part of it was, uh, they just trusted they me. They trusted you, yeah, sure. So my mom thinks that by doing that, I didn't get to play as much. But the way I see it is that I they actually enjoy play. growing up fast. Yeah. So. so by the way, on the music thing, I don't know, we've never talked about, do you play an instrument? Are you musical? I haven't played in a long time, but I do play a classical instrument in Iran called Santur. Hmm. So I played it for a long time. I was actually pretty good at it around high school it sort of like slowed down and i haven't played in quite a while beautiful instrument so you're in tehran this is now your very formative preteen teen years how many years did you live in tehran i basically lived in tehran until i was 18. 18. and then okay so then you're ready for college and is the school system similar to the states where you sort of go through grammar school high school and then university, is it the same kind of structure that we Similar. have? Similar. So there, there's elementary, which mm -hmm. is uh, five years. Then there is middle school, middle which school. is three years. And then there's high school. Okay. And high school is four years? High school, four years. Okay. Yeah. So very similar. Very similar uh, education system. So I mentioned that, you know, my next seven years were play, mm -hmm. filled with play. Mm -hmm. And I enter high school. Mm -hmm. And this is the first year where the format's a little different. The subjects are not as easy. And I call this the next episode of my life where I very vividly remember I wasn't studying mm -hmm. because I expected everything to be easy. Math at that year of high school, it required some new concepts to actually be absorbed. And I wasn't studying. Mm -hmm. And on my midterm, I'd done quite poorly. 
Uh oh. First time. First time. Rude awakening. I did not take the news back home. I remember vividly. I was called to the uh, principal's office. I walk in there and my dad is sitting there oh, no. with my math teacher. And in front of my teacher, he said, what did you get in your midterm? I said, I think I did something like B. You were truthful or not truthful? <laughs> I was trying to pretend right. that I don't quite remember. Oh. And then my teacher corrected me. Uh huh. And is this a public school or a private school, by the way? There's three kinds of schools in Iran, particularly in high school. There is the private schools, there's the public schools, and there is the so-called like semi-private, but then it's for gifted uh, okay. students. Yeah. So you have to take an exam. So this was one, one of those, those semi-private. So I had to take an exam in order to get Got to it. that school. And then my dad didn't say anything. He left. And then I came home. I can't describe how embarrassed I was. He didn't tell me anything when I came home either. And he just handed me a book. He said, your teacher recommended this. And he said something interesting to me. He said, your teacher said, don't pressure him. Not everybody's as mm. gifted as everybody else. Ooh, those are fighting words. And my dad said, I don't want to hear that again. Right. So that episode carved into my brain so heavily that it just shaped my entire high school. Right, you were- So I studied that book. I remember the final exam of that same course was so difficult that the teacher said, it looks like everyone's done really poorly on that exam. I'm giving you the option of choosing whether you want me to score your final exam or whether you want me to give you a grade based on your performance of primarily your midterm and your homeworks. Oh gosh. Out of the class of, I think 35 people, I was the only person- That took the final exam grade. Who said, mark the final exam. Huh. And I only had one half a point mistake. Wow. I ended up becoming really good friends with that high school teacher. His son's actually now in Canada and we've connected, but that really shaped my understanding of what it means to study. Well, a couple of things that are sort of coming out loud and clear. First of all, you clearly do not want to disappoint your dad. And you second, what I'm hearing is you knew you could do better. Like yes. you, you did not want to be graded off of a half effort. You only wanted to be sort of graded off of your full effort. So all of a sudden you were willing to put in your full effort and prove that you were one of those that was going to do well in that class. And uh, we didn't talk much about the relationship you had with your father and your mother, but maybe embellish there because it sounds like you have a lot of respect for them intellectually and career-wise, but describe your relationship with your dad. I'll preface it by saying, you know, for me, my dad was an enormous influence, not because he was the most successful businessman, but because his integrity was impeccable. And I learned from my dad, you know, how important it is to both be honest to yourself and honest to those that you interact with. And that's always sort of stuck with me. So I'm curious, like, what was your relationship like with your dad? Did he play soccer with you? Did you guys study together? You know, was he a friend or was it more sort of, you know, dad intimidating? I don't think he was intimidating, but he certainly was a father figure yep. than uh, I would say a friend. I respected him a lot. He's very opinionated. So am I. Yep. So we ended up headbutting a lot during my teenage years, yeah. which I ended up regretting 
and respecting his opinion as I grew up. Amazing how smart they got. Right? <laughs> I tell my daughters all the time, you know, you might think I'm a complete idiot now, but I guarantee that five or 10 years from now, you're going to look back and say, God, dad's learned a lot. He's not so stupid anymore. <laughs> On the other hand, my mom has been always supportive. Yep. She's a counterweight perhaps. So my dad grew us up to be, you know, competitive, mm -hmm. to, you know, reach for the moon and highly value education. And my mom is supportive as in, okay, well, you need to do really good in education. Well, let me give you the support that you might yeah. need to actually be good. But one thing that my dad would always do is try to use his own childhood examples to tell me how hard he has worked for what he's built so that i can value hard work he did he come from he works really really hard he came from a small town mm -hmm. as well and he would tell me stories of when he was studying for the university entrance exam that he would take different routes from the school back home to avoid things that may distract him mm. to not get home. So mm. for example, he would skip anywhere that might be a movie theater mm. so that he wouldn't know what's, what's on there. So he wouldn't want to, you know, go to the movies laser focused. Um, and he was laser focused mm. and he would tell me this story where he told one of his, uh, school teachers that I want to go to this university and it's the top technical university in Iran. The teacher tells him, you know what? That's for people who are better than you and I. Aye. Aim a little lower so you're not disappointing yourself. And what that did to him is he aimed- Even higher. Even higher. And he said, it's that university or nothing. Good and he ended up effectively getting to that university at you know, studying electrical engineering, which is the hardest one of all <laughs> to get into. And he would keep telling me these stories to, to tell me that achieving goals, regardless of your talent, requires hard work. Yes. By the way, there are a few common characteristics that we're seeing repeatedly through this, this process of the fabric. And one of them is clearly hard work. There is no successful entrepreneur that I know of that hasn't busted their butt for those that are listening and aspire to be entrepreneurs, one thing that you absolutely positively need to do is work your tail off. That's true. And even to this day, my mom's often the person who is telling me to slow down a bit. And my dad's saying, no, drive harder. <laughs> he's saying, just stay healthy. But he then says, when I was your age, yeah, I was probably working 12 to 14 hours a day. So it's not going to kill you. <laughs> okay. So you finished high school, you're ready for college. And what were your choices and how did you think about where you wanted your college education? So what happened with my college education was I knew that we're moving to Canada. Can you talk a little bit about what catalyzed that? What was the sort of impetus for you guys leaving Tehran? I think around the time that I entered high school, that's when my dad decided that in order to have a better future, for all of us, it's best to leave home. I assume it was the political environment, the Revolutionary Guard. Predominantly, more and more. It's, a, it's a political environment. It's the fact that growing in that system is not merit-based. Hmm. 
There's a lot of connections that are at play. There's a lot of unhealthy competition <laughs> that is at place. And it's the kind of thing that primarily generates stress for you than a good sense of winning. Even when you're winning, you don't feel like you deserve to win. So my dad, one of his closest friends had already moved to Canada. He was vouching that this is the right thing. You should do that for your family as well. I don't have a great understanding of the immigration policies that Canada had in place at that time. Was Canada very open? Was it? So Canada was, I would say, very, the process was very transparent, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. So you would have to have certain qualifications in terms of your education. So the fact that your parents were... Years of, yeah, exactly. So years of, uh, you know, work in a technical field mm -hmm. and the process was very transparent. So was, I think, Australia's, but then most other places, including United States, was not very transparent. So that led to him preferring to move to Canada. That's a big move too. I mean, all of your families in Iran, like he must have felt the import of leaving to sort of get, you know, greener pastures, but gosh, was there angst around the dinner table as this was being talked about? Was it sort of a fait accompli when it was introduced to you and your brother and sister that, Hey, we have decided we are moving to Canada or was like, how did that evolve? Were you guys part of that discussion or did your parents just one day say, guys, we thought a lot about this. This is what we're doing. It was more of a ladder, mm -hmm. but I think all of us were somewhat excited yeah. about it. Hmm. So we were told about, you know, how life is better and there is more opportunity. And that's the one thing that I think we all have in common, which yeah. is, I mean, as a family, I mean, we're all very ambitious. So we were excited about the opportunity. Had you guys ever traveled outside of Iran at the time? No, never. So my, my parents had, they had, but none of us had, uh, we had not, never actually traveled outside of Iran. We were never, I would say a wealthy family, but my parents made sure that, you know, whether it's going to private school or just having all the necessities of life. Yeah. We were, you're comfortable. We were very comfortable. And they definitely made a serious commitment to your education. Yes, very much. Yeah. So then we moved to Canada. Did you speak English at that time? So we did go to English classes mm -hmm. very religiously mm -hmm. <laughs> from early age. Okay. So we all spoke enough English that when I came here, I was able to pass the English exam yep. and enter university. So you mentioned, you know, we had to say goodbye to everyone. And this is where the next episode of my life yeah. comes to play, which is I had to say goodbye to my high school girlfriend. Oh, we've never talked about your high school girlfriend. No, I certainly had some headbutting with my dad over that because sure. he was certainly concerned what impact that may have in my choices. Mm -hmm. So what ended up happening was I entered university. How did you choose? How did I choose the university? Yeah, like your family knew they were coming to Vancouver. Correct. And then, so there really was two choices there, I assume, for a technical degree. I mean, so share, share with the audience. So there, is, uh, there are two primary universities in Vancouver. There's the University of British Columbia, and there's the Simon Fraser University. Mm -hmm. Simon Fraser University's engineering program at the time was very well thought of yeah, and very well. very well regarded. As to what option I would take, the systems option, which was about robotics, 
is something that resonated with me. It was also maybe additional credit at the time, me wanting to prove that I'm really smart, that systems was considered one of the harder ones to do. So uh, I ended up choosing to pursue a systems option. And in university was the first time in my life that everything that I was studying was enjoyable to me. It's like, oh, you want to take physics all day and night? You can do that. Yeah, great. Here is your choice of electives. Pick the one that you like the most. Yep. And it was a huge, huge difference in me liking to actually learn about all those subjects. It was also perhaps when it dawned on me that I'm really good at this. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, we sort of wrestle with recommending to our children that they, you know, follow their passion, right? And I think over the last five, 10 years or so, I think that soundbite has come into question. Is it really follow your passion or work hard at something, become good at it, and then when you're good at it, follow that? And, I, you know, I'm not sure I have the right answer, but what I'm hearing loud and clear, and it resonates with me as I compare you with other entrepreneurs, what I'm hearing is that, you know, when you found interest in something, you were able to really dig into it really because you enjoyed it. It wasn't work. It was sort of fun learning. And, and as a result of that, you ended up excelling at those particular subjects that happened to be the preponderance of everything that you were studying at SFU. And so maybe another lesson, another sort of element of your fabric is, you know, when you're doing something that you enjoy, when an entrepreneur is doing something that he or she or they enjoy, they're able to excel at it. And you sort of first witness this at, at SFU. And obviously that's perpetuated in your career, the internships. So, so your first step into the sort of working world were these internships and, you know, talk a little bit about how you decided where to work and what kind of things attracted you or were interesting to you. Cause eventually you got into C computer vision and, and now robotics and it, that journey is something I definitely want to kind of flush out a bit so people can yeah, learn of from course. it. My very, very first internship was at a semiconductors lab at SFU. Mm -hmm. This was before we were applying for internships. So I basically went to my professor, uh, that I had just had finished a physics course with. And I uh, told him, can I work in your lab? Yeah. It was a fascinating experience back then. This is 2001. They were making semiconductors that could clock at over 10 gigahertz. Even today, we still don't have chips that are uh, commercial at, that are clocking at that speed. It was a really good experience, but it also taught me a lot about optics and, uh, process hmm. in experimentation and being result driven. But it also helped me secure my second internship, which was at the time with BC's most successful tech startup. They're already at that point public. This were, is this is Creo. Creo. Later they got acquired by Kodak. Right. What did Creo do? What was the, what was their business? Their business was they built pre press imaging machines that would image onto the pre-pressed plates using a patented laser technology. The lithography, essentially. Yeah. Yep. So I got an internship there in their research department where I was working on coming up with automated ways of 
tuning these laser edging heads mm -hmm. to have a uniform laser profile. Okay. That's where I ended up being a co-inventor on my, on my very first patent, mm -hmm. which was a fun experience. But I also ended up doing multiple independent co-ops at Creo. I also ended up really, really enjoying work. So when I compared my time at the semiconductor lab, where I was working with PhD candidates to my time in industry, I very much preferred the industry work. It was a lot more result driven, perhaps, mm -hmm. even though I was doing research work, it was a more dynamic work yeah. environment. So that's when I decided that I want to join industry. My intention is not to pursue academic. Introduced to semiconductors, then sort of laser lithography. And, you know, eventually you're sort of at the end of your studies at SFU and you had gotten the taste of work. You knew that's, you wanted to do industry, you didn't want to teach. And sort of when you graduated, where did you go to work? That's a very interesting story. So last semester, I am working my last internship, which was my seventh internship. Mm -hmm. I was taking a class. It had a capstone project at the end and I was pulling an all nighter in a lab to finish that project. One of my schoolmates who I used to have quite a bit of joint projects with was also doing the same. So I was taking the same class, pulling an all nighter. I talked to him. He says, I just joined this stealth startup as one of the first engineers. I think you'll love the work. I can't tell you what we do, huh. but you should definitely come and talk to us. And this is a day after the company that I was doing my internship with gave me an offer to start full-time with right, them. So you have a full-time offer from a well-established company that you sort of know and is stable and your friend is telling you, no, come join a startup. I can't tell you what we do, but it's fun. And I would say that during our program, I also had a really interesting course, which was called Entrepreneurship for Engineers. And the instructor there, Mike Volker, he's actually through his fund, is an investor at Apera. All right. The course was fascinating because it really opened up my eyes to what the world of entrepreneurship hmm. in Canada could look like. I want to get into this now because when we talk to the various entrepreneurs we've backed, you know, entrepreneurship is a seed that gets planted and seems to germinate and grow in their minds. You know, was this the seed? Was this the moment that it got, or had you always thought to yourself, you know, I'm smart. I don't want to have a boss. I'll start my own company. Like how important to you was entrepreneurship before this moment? I think what drove me very much to entrepreneurship after learning what entrepreneurship means was two things. One, the opportunity to make a big impact. Mm-hmm. The fact that we had entrepreneur guest speakers during this course and everybody was talking about the pain, but also the reward. Yeah. And the reward is really making that huge impact. And it's not financial. Like it wasn't in your mind financial. Financial was the second thing. Okay. The fact that basically I was convinced that the only way to become wealthy as an engineer is to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. So those two elements combined drew me a lot to entrepreneurship. Great. And I didn't mention this earlier on, we were talking about my relationship with my dad, but one thing that my dad did 
which at the time I didn't like. And as I grew up, I valued a lot was that he made sure that I always know that I'm spending his money. Yes. I right, so I got to sort of interject here. So, you know, what sometimes we'll skirt around that wealth creation as a motivator. And for some people, it's really not. But for many people, it is. And it may not be because they want to own their own private island or fly private, but because they use that as a report card to evaluate how they've done. I will say for me personally, when I was in high school, I have two older sisters and my parents had put aside money and sent my sisters to college and paid for their college and they were expecting to do the same for me and then lo and behold as a junior in high school my dad was laid off the company that he worked with went bankrupt and so all of his savings including my college money disappeared and i was faced with this dilemma how do i go to college how do i pay for college and so for me money wealth creation has been important because it's a sign of independence it's a report card on success so i'm curious if that motivation sort of triggered in you it sounds like your father made it clear to you that independence was important Yes, but in a maybe at the time, I didn't value the independence. The feeling of sensing that I'm spending somebody else's money mm -hmm. that I almost have to report back to. Repay that. Uh, it didn't feel good. So the moment that I was able to work, yes, I started working. Yep. So I was working minimum uh, wage before I had my first internship. And as I was having internship and I was making money, I was also getting lots of scholarships at the time that was almost paying for all of my tuition. So all my internship money was effectively pocket money. So it's a great it, feeling. It, it right? was a great, a great feeling, feeling to not have to ask for money. Right. And I owe that to my dad because he made sure that I grew up valuing, valuing yep. independence and earning my own money. Yeah. So when I was presented with these two opportunities, I remember I did my interview with the startup and they're like, yeah, you should come join. I signed an NDA to know what they're doing. And I asked my dad and he said, I think you know my answer. This is the age if you want to take a risk. He did say that. I was, gonna, I was expecting you to say the opposite, which was, hey, you know, the conservative path, the certainty path is this direction. That feels a lot more, but no, he was, he no. was risk tolerant. And if you think about his life, you know, he had a well-established job for Shiraz. He moved to Tehran, where which is a new town, yeah. a new job. Right. He, took he moved this. to a new company. And then, if when I think about the decision to move to Canada, where you have no job, huge risk, new it's country, a, it's new a culture, massive risk. Yeah. You know, uh, in Wharton, I took this finance class, and the professor was this brilliant finance brain. My favorite lesson that he gave us during the semester can be summarized as follows. He used to say it repeatedly, so I, it got etched into my brain. If you're a lover of risk, you'll always make money. And if you don't like risk, if you're not willing to embrace risk, you'll never make money. I firmly believe that at this point. And we see it repeatedly in our portfolio and other sort of successful entrepreneurs. You've got to take the risk. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be blatantly ignorant about the risk. You have to be knowledgeable about it. And your dad clearly was, right? He evaluated the options of where he could emigrate. Yeah. And when he came here, he started his own business in manufacturing, mm. which is perhaps my primary introduction to, you know, what it means to run a manufacturing business. Yeah. 
What, was he, what, what did he manufacture, or does he still manufacture? He actually still operates his business. It's basically a contract manufacturer for fabrication of all sorts of metal components. Metal, okay. So your dad's encouraging you to take the risk. You sign the NDA. And it turns out that the business idea is we're going to take scientific imaging principles to the surveillance world. Mm-hmm. Because today surveillance image quality is bad. It sucks. That was a pitch. I was sold on it. Name the company. This uh, was at the time it was called OmniContact. Okay. What did it become? A Vigilant. A Vigilant. So, Ultimately sold to to no, Motorola Solutions. Motorola Solutions. That's right. MSI. Sorry. It went public and then sold to Motorola correct. Solutions for one of the largest exits in Vancouver for a tech startup, right? That's correct. 1. Yeah. So five billion dollars around that. Yeah. Yes. Phenomenal. How many years were you there? I was there for close to nine years. Nine years. And, and how many employees were there when you started and how many employees ultimately when you left? So when I started, I think we were just about 10. And when I left, I believe we were close to a thousand. Amazing experience. What a fun ride. What are two or three of the most sort of salient things you learned in that journey? The first thing that I learned was it takes a little bit of time to fall in love with something. Mm -hmm. So I think the first week and the second week, I'm like, oh my God, there's nothing here. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing exactly. And then within the first month, I think it was the first full weekend that I was both Saturday and Sunday at work. And I think that pattern continued for the next probably like four or five years. I think I started taking one weekend off uh, eventually, but I fell in love with the vision, the mission, and more than anything with people that I was working with. This is a period where also I mentioned my high school girlfriend. Mm -hmm. So we maintained a long distance relationship. That's a really long distance. Relationship. Very long distance. I really, truly loved her. Mm -hmm. And right after school, I basically went to Iran and we got a marriage certificate so that she could come to Canada easily. And uh, she came to Canada. She actually started studying at Simon Fraser as well. And we, we got married. And this next episode of my life has been basically a vigilant and 120% support of my wife. I'm going to push us forward. So, you know, a vigilant, you know, there's a lot of learnings there and good luck, right? I assume within there, there's some elements of good luck that propelled the business. You know, finally, you know, nine years passed, the company's gone public, it's bought, you're working at Motorola. So what made you leave at that point? I actually left shortly before they got acquired okay. by Motorola. Got it. What made me leave was primarily that we had grown so fast, so quickly that there was very little process in place for a company of that size mm -hmm. and that revenue. We had to almost put a break on to start introducing the process. Ultimately, I thought my time is better spent outside of a vigilant. I didn't feel that I have as huge of an impact that I used to have. I mean, at the time I was, responsible for the team that was contributing to about 
70% of our close to 400 million in revenue, they really did love the team and they loved the culture. And when it was suddenly changing for what I considered not the best, I thought it's time. And you and went from there to... So what I did there was I actually took a break. Yep. I went traveling. We spent six months traveling with my, with my wife. Neat. It's sort of a belt around the world. And then I got together with a few former Vichelon colleagues mm -hmm. trying to basically figure out what we want to do next. Mm -hmm. So we'd all made pretty good money off of Vigilon's uh, great success. And we were all trying to understand what's the next nice. big thing. And of course, AI robotics was a huge opportunity. It was mostly an unexplored intersection of this technology. This is what, 2017, 20? This is around 2016. 2016, yeah. And at the time, nothing really gelled. But I did want to really immerse myself into AI. So I had an opportunity to join AWS AI. Mm -hmm. So I took that opportunity to really get into the heart of what is today's AI and deep and learning. What was, you, you spent about a year there, if I recall. What was the, so the gist of the project there? It wasn't working on the robotics in the warehouses. It was AWS. It was sort of the cloud services. What was sort of the high level gist of that I was part of AWS AI. Okay. And it was uh, at the time a fairly new division. During even that year, it grew quite rapidly. Mm -hmm. My role was really interesting and I loved the work. I was effectively a deep learning expert that would pair up with others who had ideas to really move AI projects forward. Okay. So the first project I really got heavily involved in is I paired up with a speech scientist out of Cambridge, UK on building the next generation of text-to-speech for AWS. Hmm. And today's voice of Alexa effectively is that. running based on that. Yeah, so yeah. before that, the technology was using classical ways of doing text-to-speech. It sounded quite robotic. And then we demonstrated how using deep learning, you can get far more superior voice quality. And then the second project that I was very much involved in was partially teaching robots and other intelligent agents to learn in a simulation environment, hmm. which does have quite a bit of overlap with what, what we do at Apera. Yeah. And while I was there, I met my co-founder and we heard this reverse pitch from a tier one automotive about basically the inferiority of existing vision guided robotic technologies in factories and how there is so much potential in further automation in factories that is effectively on tap. I love this part of this story, and I'm going to take the liberty of kind of giving you the layman's perspective of the market opportunity, and then I'll ask you to correct it. You know, so as we learned about this opportunity, it became clear to us that manufacturing is continuing to grow at a very steady pace. Automation in manufacturing has been sort of a priority for the last 15 years uh, with ever improving automation capabilities. Over the last decade, we've seen this vision approach 
vision guided robotics emerge and the predominant methodology for that vision guided robotics to date has been structured lighting where you have a camera and a projector that sits over the work site the projector shines a grid down on the work site the camera looks at that grid and based upon the contours of how the grid reflects off of whatever's being done at the work site it can conjure up a model of what the robot is supposed to be addressing picking sorting inspecting moving manipulating uh, the problem is that that projector is subject to a bunch of vulnerabilities one is it not necess doesn't necessarily do well with things that are see-through or clear or shiny or overlapping. Those are difficult things for the grid, the projector, to sort of render an accurate image of. There's also issues with the lighting in the building that can change over time, and so additional lighting interferes with the projection. And so those all cause vulnerabilities with structured lighting that we heard repeatedly from manufacturers are problematic. Along comes you guys with this idea of vision and I, the way I've interpreted what your story was hey humans have two eyes and a, and a thing called a brain which is kind of an AI engine what if we just mimic that and have two eyes and, a, and an AI engine looking over this site and thereby be able to sort of more accurately render what the robot's supposed to be manipulating and be able to give the robot instructions in real time okay so that's my story I'm sticking to it Correct it if you can. Where did I go wrong there? So that was very much bang on. I think there's another element of it, which is there's the sensing component, which you can use structured lighting, which is what everybody else does. And then there is the algorithmic component of mm -hmm. it, which again, everybody pretty much uses a, about a two decade old algorithm for cat matching, mm -hmm. where you're matching the humps and bumps in your scene to the shape of the cat object. And that also is inferior because not every cat object has views that may be easily matchable mm -hmm. with the humps and bumps in the scene. The classic example is a palette of boxes where you have a flat surface and you have no idea where a box starts and where the box ends. Mm -hmm. Everything just looks like a plane. And there are many similar arrangements of parts that can also happen with many other parts uh, in manufacturing. So the inferior algorithm combined with inferior sensing resulted in solutions that right off the bat would say, no, can't do to many opportunities and for opportunities that it would try to do, which is one of our biggest, fastest growing successes right now is that it works fine in a lab environment. You move it to the production line and it only kind of works. Yeah. Sometimes to the point that they decide to just not use it. And sometimes to the point that it creates a lot of so-called micro stops. So, the upgrade of existing cells with inferior vision technology today is our fastest growing sales. Yep. We call it the retrofits because manufacturers had been basically promised something. They were given something that was far from the promise and they were not given any tool to improve that. Right. And so, so prior to Apera, there were manufacturing cells that were staffed by humans. And along comes the structured lighting solution providers that say, hey, we can replace some or a significant percentage of that human workforce 
by making your robots more efficient with the structured lighting. So they're expecting a certain higher yield of picking or higher yield of sort. And lo and behold, those get installed. They're not cheap and they don't do what was promised. So the manufacturers at that point could either rehire the people or they learn about a para and a para comes along. And if you could share with the audience, what kind of percentage improvement an accuracy or whatever the metric is that you think the audience would sort of appreciate. Give us a sense for sort of how much better what you're doing is. It depends on the application. As an example, for an automotive manufacturer, the annual cost saving that they gained by replacing their existing vision system with a para from removing the microstops was over $190,000 of productivity a year. Well, per how many cells is that? Do you that's, think? that's a single cell. A single cell. Single and cell. And how many cells, for those that are listening and are not as familiar with, might a reasonably sized automotive parts manufacturer have? On a given plant, yeah. there is, uh, you can imagine, anywhere with 100 to 200. Mm -hmm. And a typical automotive tier one OEM, they probably have anywhere between 30 to 50 plants around the world. Yeah. The opportunity is absolutely massive Dynamous. and uh, the impact that they see is absolutely massive. The uh, rule of thumb in automotive, for example, because it's expected to be a highly productive, highly optimized manufacturing process is that one hour of productivity loss costs about $10,000 in lost revenue. Hmm. So. When I'm saying, you know, $200,000, $190,000, that's not that many stops. Right. 20 right? stops, right? It's 20 stops. But that 20 stop contributes to so much revenue loss yeah. that if it takes half an hour to get it back up and running, then it's worth a lot to actually address that. Yeah. So that's what the para brings with the accuracy comes a lot of reliability. Mm -hmm. So when the system needs to perform something at a certain accuracy level that once in a while it's not able to meet with an alternative system, you might have a 98%, 99% reliability. With a para, you end up squeezing nines from the decimal. So 99.9 .9 and 99.99 .99 is extremely common. Yeah. And uh, over time, you can get to 99.999. So the number of these microstops reduces significantly, which immediately contributes to right. higher productivity and higher top line. Let me take a step back for a sec. You know, so you and your co-founder were introduced to this problem, this conundrum in manufacturing automation. You had sort of, you know, taken some time to recharge the batteries and sort of look around. How did you get conviction that you could solve this problem? How did you get an understanding of the market opportunity? How did you put it in motion? We started by, as you stated, saying inferior sensing, inferior algorithms. How do we remove both. As you stated, we were inspired by human vision because many of these tasks that are not even attempted for automation, ultimately humans are doing it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times people credit humans dexterity to these tasks. But the matter of fact is in manufacturing, 
And I state manufacturing because I want to separate it from the challenge in perhaps order fulfillment. In manufacturing, because you're performing the same task over and over and over, it is very much possible to design an end of arm tooling, a gripper for that very task that may even cost five to $10,000. Mm -hmm. But because you get to use that end of arm tooling for several years, then the return on investment is a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. So the gripping can be customized. It's really the vision guidance that is the biggest problem. And because humans are able to use simply two cameras mm -hmm. with a intelligent processor to solve this problem, we said, this must be the way that we solve this. And to be fair, by vision or stereo vision, had been how 3D vision guidance started back in late 90s and early 2000s. Hmm. It's just that people gave up on it because they were using inferior computer vision algorithms. They didn't have the processing. That they just were not intelligent enough. So everybody naturally gravitated towards structured lighting systems where you're trying to solve this difficult computer vision problem by bringing some sort of a structure in the form of a structured light mm -hmm. to simplify the computer vision problem. Now, one of the biggest challenges in today's AI is the data. Yeah. It's one thing to have humans sit down and draw boxes around traffic lights and pedestrians to label the data. It's another thing to expect them to select every pixel and give it an X, Y, Z coordinate in space. Yes. It's just not practical. So right off the bat, we knew that the only practical way to solve this problem is for us to train the AI in a simulation environment using digital twin and synthetic data. Mm -hmm. So we set off to solve that problem. However, the problem at the time was nobody believed that you can train AI in simulation and use it in a real environment because there's a so-called domain gap problem. There's a sim to real gap problem where you train well on simulation, it performs well in simulation, but it doesn't perform well on real data. So we set off to solve that problem for manufacturing. And that's one of our certainly trained secrets where our neural network architectures combined with our proprietary data simulation, data science, yeah. they match perfectly to the point that we can train in 100% simulation data in a completely automated way. Hmm. And the trained AI performs highly reliably. And when I say highly, I'm talking about 99.9 and 99.99% reliability off in real bat. environments. Off the bat. Off the bat. Yeah. Let's talk about the future. You've now built this amazing product. You have dozens of customers. It is really a fun time right now because you're seeing phenomenal growth. Talk to us a little bit about where the future of Apera goes and ultimately how is Sina, how are you going to define your success? Whether it's three, five, seven years from now, what would be a success for you? So today we're uh, really at early stages, I would say, of expanding through some of the largest and most successful manufacturers in the world. Our uh, 
first customer was in automotive. Automotive is still a very meaningful vertical for us, but because our technology has no limit on material finish, on the actual uh, shininess, on the transparency, it has unique applications that nobody else in the world can solve in some of the industries like hand tools, in uh, life sciences, where almost everything is transparent and translucent. So we are also expanding in those markets. And when we talk to manufacturers, when they learn about the type of automation that we enable, everybody immediately starts talking about the opportunity that they see with this technology in the next four or five years. So I think the expansion opportunity is massive. We are getting integrated certainly into new sales. Our fastest growth today and our shortest sales cycle sales are in uh, effectively these uh, upgrades to sales that have effectively have over-promised and under-delivered. Mm -hmm. And we go in there and we under-promise, over-deliver. Over under-promise above where they've been promised in the past yes. and way over-deliver in the results. So that's where we're effectively making our mark. That appears to be a really, really good and rapid beachhead for us to get then get specced into many of the upcoming projects. I think Apera, is going to be the eyes and brains of the cell. Vision is an incredibly rich sensor that brings a lot of information to make intelligent decisions. So I think the fact that we control the vision gives us a huge head start to any of the other components in a robotic cell to become effectively the brains of the cell. Yeah. We are already seeing the impact of our autopilot technology and guiding the robots path, not only for the vision driven aspect of it, but also outside of the vision driven uh, aspect. And by effectively becoming the brains of the cell, we're able to effectively become the necessity in every automation cell. So where do I want to take this company? We had a really successful exit with a visual on. The robot automation market is about 10 times the size of surveillance. the video surveillance. My goal is to build a company that's at least 10 times as large as a visual on. That means a 10 billion plus company. I think the opportunity is certainly there. I think we have a big head start in front of our competition. So, you know, continuous growth, continuous execution, laser focused on uh, solving what matters the most for our customers is how we're going to continue building this company. It's awesome. It's awesome. And that's where we want to see it go as well, just for the record. <laughs> This has been a, a, an amazing conversation. A lot was revealed here. You know, some of the things that are sort of resonating for me, you know, first of all, hard work, right? Your whole career, whether it's in the classroom, in your internships, or in your sort of professional roles has been about hard work. And, and I see that every day. And you have a sparkle 
about what you're doing. And when you talked about being turned on when you finally enrolled in SFU, it's clear that you're still turned on because I can see sort of the energy there, which leads me to believe that not only are you working hard, but you're doing well because you do well when you're turned on. You know, I've seen you manage and it's pretty clear in the validation you've received at a Vigilon that people like working with you. They like working for you. They like following your lead. And a lot of it probably stems from how you were raised and the import that your your parents imposed upon you on being, you know, conscientious, respectful of your resources and your opportunities and being a good communicator and being honest about your communication. And last I'll say is, you know, we continue to be extremely excited about it. Manufacturing is not going away. It's growing. Automation and manufacturing is not going away. It's growing. Being the brain in manufacturing automation strikes us as an incredible place to be. And so we are thrilled with where you are to date, and we're extremely excited about where you are going to go in the future. So and we're here to support you along that journey, as you know. So, Sina, thank you for joining us. Thank you, um, buddy. It was a pleasure. We look forward to maybe revisiting this in a year or two from now and updating on the traction of Apera. But until then, keep up the great work. We are thrilled to be behind you. Thank you. This has been The Fabric, a podcast by Lobby Capital. Make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming episodes and content. I'm Buddy Arnheim, and I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you.